You're listening. You're listening to a University of Kentucky. University of Kentucky. College of Arts and Sciences podcast. Dennis Goldberg is a social campaigner from South Africa who actively worked against apartheid and was imprisoned for doing so. He was a founding member of the Congress of Democrats, which eventually allied with the African National Congress. Goldberg was arrested and tried in the Rivonia trial alongside Nelson Mandela. In this second installment of the Nelson Mandela lecture series, Goldberg speaks out about working with Mandela, his experiences working against apartheid, and his current efforts in South Africa. Okay, folks, uh, thank you all for uh, taking time out of your busy schedules uh, to be with us on this fine spring afternoon. Today is the second lecture in a two-part series about the anti-apartheid struggle in commemoration of Nelson Mandela. Today we have the rare pleasure of meeting a freedom fighter who was one of Mandela's closest comrades, Dennis Goldberg. I first met Dennis while conducting interviews of struggle veterans in Cape Town five years ago. Although he is not a household name in this country in the same sense as Mandela, Dennis's shadow loomed large over the history of the anti-apartheid struggle in all its phases. The era of mass protest in the 1950s, the formation of the military wing of the African National Congress in the early 1960s, the imprisonment of the of better part of half of the leadership through the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, and the high watermark of the international solidarity campaigns of the late 1980s and early 1990s. And last but not least, the historical elections in 1994 and the post-apartheid governments that followed thereafter. Today, Dennis does the humble but noble work of addressing the inequalities in South Africa through his work with Community Heart, a non-governmental organization that aims at improving health, education, and reconstruction in South Africa. As an oral historian and a historian who works on the history of the anti-apartheid struggle, I can say that there are very few interviewees like Dennis. Not only has Dennis lived in what may be best termed interesting times, but he can do what few interviewees can, recapture how he thought about an event at that time rather than superimposing a politically convenient or self-aggrandizing narrative over his own memory. It is this quality, among others, that makes Dennis an eminently suitable guest speaker as we celebrate the life and legacy of Nelson Mandela and the movement that he was a part of. Ladies and gentlemen, Dennis Goldberg. Good day to you. My first time in Kentucky, and the sun's shining, and it's lovely to be here, and nice to be in this auditorium. And I know we're celebrating the legacy of Nelson Mandela, but I feel you cannot talk about Nelson Mandela without speaking about Oliver Tambor. Nelson Mandela was in prison for 27 and a half years. And the struggle for freedom, thank you. And the struggle, is it on? And the yes. struggle for freedom went on. Nelson Mandela in prison having said to his comrades there, uh, you cannot lead a revolutionary struggle from inside prison. 
the leadership is outside. When I say his comrades there, we were sentenced in the same trial, the Ravonia trial, in, when was it, 1964, to life imprisonment. Uh, we laughed when we got that because we were expecting to be hanged, to be sentenced to death. And it was um, great when the judge said that the trial was tantamount to one of high treason, since we were attempting to overthrow the state by force of arms. And the appropriate penalty would be the ultimate sentence. But, oh, what a wonderful word, but, <laughs> that was. It hadn't been charged as high treason, but a sabotage, a special law, where the legal situation had been overturned. Normally, as in the United States, Britain, other countries, you're innocent until proven guilty. The Sabotage Act specifically laid out that if you, there was a, on the face of it a case against you, you had to prove your innocence. And I want to tell you as a little boy who had my fingers in the cookie jar, it's hard to prove your innocence, <laughs> even when you are. Uh, when you have seriously attempted to create the conditions to overthrow the state, it's impossible. So, when we were sentenced to life imprisonment, I was sent to a prison in Pretoria, over a thousand miles distant from Nelson Mandela and other comrades who were black and sentenced to serve or serve their time on Robben Island. Apartheid in the prisons as well. Oliver Tambo had been sent out of the country quite a long time before the arrests took place in 1963, specifically because we knew we could never survive with everybody inside the country. And he was sent out as a kind of super diplomat to win support from African countries in particular, but worldwide, people worldwide, for the struggle against apartheid, for its utter brutality and inhumanity. Nelson Mandela took a trip abroad he went abroad without a passport. He traveled through Africa. He did some military training in, uh, in uh, Ethiopia and in Algeria. He went to Great Britain, told a lovely story of having acquired an Ethiopian passport in the name of David Matsumai. Arriving in Britain, arrives at the passport control and the officer says, good day, Mr. Mandela. I'm <laughs> looking at the false passport. Uh, he thought British intelligence was pretty good. But he'd arranged to meet newspaper editors and others, so they, you know, everybody was in the know. He met with Oliver Tambo and told him of the decision to undertake the armed struggle, which made Oliver Tambo's work very difficult. He had won support in Britain, America, France, Germany, because we were a peaceful movement, had been since 1912, when the ANC was founded, and it was founded specifically to deal with the Native Lands Act of became 1913, which stripped African people of their land, left them then 7%, but later 13% of the land, for two-thirds of the population. The driest, most infertile land there. And the answer is quite simple. If people don't have land from which to make a living, they cannot compete with white farmers 
And so you have a, really the decline and destruction of an African peasantry who was supplying food to the gold mines and other miners. Uh, why do I forget the name of the author who made the major study of this, but serious study. <coughs> and um, to compound it, there was the need for masses of cheap labor. And one way to have cheap labor is to make it impossible to live off the land. And secondly, to compel people to pay taxes in cash. No longer a chicken or a goat or a sheep uh, to pay taxes. And the taxes I'm talking about specifically for African men was a hut tax and a wife tax and a dog tax and a car tax. And the juxtaposition is not accidental because it reflected attitudes of the time. Which meant people had to go to work for whatever wages they could get, therefore cheap labor, and were not allowed to take their families with them. So this Lands Act was a key thing, key piece of legislation, uh, created immense poverty and immense destruction of family life, because then there were the past laws, and to go to work, you needed permission in your pass. And not to have the permission was a criminal offence if you went to the city. So to go to work to feed your family was a criminal offence if you didn't have permission. When I say go to work, round about a half of all African people had no work in the towns or cities or mines or white farms. Uh, the consequence in terms of suffering of inhumanity was enormous. The ANC for many years was a petitioning body, a, a kind of educated elite, interpreters in courts, petty government officials assisting the administration of black people, black people's lives. They would write very good letters in what my late wife would call mission school English, very flowery language, beautiful copper plate handwriting. And it was ignored. And so they would write to the Queen or King of England and ask for help because it was the British Parliament that passed the Act of Union, handing hand power to white South Africans, the minority. And of course, the answer was the South African government would deal with the issues. And over the years, there was a growing resentment and a growing understanding that things could not go on that way. The need was to regain control of lives and dignity, and that meant land and economic and social opportunities. Then came World War II. I'm skipping a bit of history here and there. Then came World War II. Roosevelt and Churchill meet and pronounce the Atlantic Charter, the war aims of the Western Allies. End of colonialism, everybody will be free and equal. Uh, it didn't quite work that way. The English lost their colonies and the Americans took them over financially and so on. But young intellectuals in South Africa took it seriously, formed the African National Congress Youth League with a determination to create a militant, organized mass of people who would not petition but demand. We were, in our country, deeply influenced by Mahatma Gandhi, the idea of satyagraha, the idea of soul force, if you're principled enough, the enemy will fight for the oppressor, will finally have to concede. 
Well, he invented the idea in South Africa, put it to work in India, where 10,000 British soldiers and administrators could go home. But five million white South Africans were part of South Africa and weren't going home. And nobody wanted them anyway. Nobody had no other country. And so the struggle intensified, and this young ANC Youth League was very Africanist in its approach. They took the idea of end of colonialism and equality as meaning Africa for the Africans and to hell with anybody else, the settlers in particular. Until there was a growing realization that what are you going to do with the national minorities, which in South Africa we still use the language of white, black, colored, Indian, all with their different privileges and rights or no rights in that descending order. What do you do with them? Do they have a place or not? And if you talk equality, how can you say everybody but us out? Equal is equal. And so by the end of the 1940s, there is a document called the African Plans, which is a kind of forerunner of the UN Declaration of Human Rights, five years before the Declaration of Universal Declaration, which is quite remarkable. And this follows through into the Freedom Charter of South Africa in 1955, where our people literally through 10,000 meetings said what they wanted to see in the future. And I think astonishingly generously said to the white oppressor, South Africa belongs to all who live in it, black and white together. Then sets out the freedoms in considerable detail. And for me, an act of generosity, because it says what we're fighting against is white supremacy, not whites as white. It's quite a sophisticated concept for a mass of people to follow. And that was our guide lodestone for the next 30, 40 years of struggle. A remarkable achievement politically, when it would have been so easy to, as demagogues, to say, this is for Africans and all else out. In fact, formed an African National Congress-led Congress Alliance of African National Congress as the leading body, Colored People's Congress, Indian Congress, and Congress of Democrats of White South Africans, the smallest part, smallest component of the alliance. But because of the nature of apartheid with resources, cars, money, telephones, organizing ability, playing for some a conscious leading role, um, for others a kind of supporting role, for some of us an insistence that it has to be a supporting role, that the African National Congress representing the most oppressed has to lead the struggle. Otherwise, you don't overcome the inherent racism of our past. And so the struggle continues through the 1950s with defiance of unjust laws, deliberately breaking the law to protest the law, and the government passes a law which makes breaking the law to protest a second offence for which 10 years in prison was possible. Three months for the original offence, the apartheid laws going into the wrong office, going through a wrong doorway as black people or white people going into the wrong black township without permission, brought a prison sentence and heavy punishment. Eventually 8,000 people Depired, the concept being they would block the criminal justice system 
the apartheid government would have to concede. Governments don't concede so easily. <coughs> Instead of just making a punishment for 10 years, strokes, lashes of the can. And that broke it, it's true it did. People couldn't stand the pain, the humiliation, the scars, which lost forever. But the protests went on, various uh, campaigns, a sort of shifting balance of power as the ANC gained in strength, a breakaway by the Pan-Africanist Congress because of our Freedom Charter, and the Pan-Africanist Congress said, no, no, South Africa belongs to black people, nobody else. Uh, they gained some support, but never the support that the ANC had, partly because after a massacre at a place called Sharpville in 1960, where thousands of people gathered to hand in their passes as a protest, they were not going to be ruled by this domin dominating law anymore. The police opened fire in a few minutes, killed 69 people wounded close to 200. A smaller demonstration, smaller killings and woundings in Cape Town. And the next day, a march on Parliament in Cape Town of 30,000 people out of the townships. And the white politicians panicked, declared a state of emergency, tantamount to martial law. 20,000 people were arrested. That was my first taste of prison for four months. And after the four months were over and five months for some, we realized we could survive prison. We didn't know what was still to come. We thought it was easygoing stuff, you know. But the laws hadn't changed except greater repression, more security police, more tapping of telephones, more intimidation of meetings that were legal, but taking names, taking photographs, and so on. And so we continued. But at the same time, people said, enough of the killings, enough of the brutality. We have to take up arms. And Nelson Mandela and others, Joe Slaver, there was an alliance between the ANC and Communist Party, which had been going on for, by that time, 30 years, because the Communist Party was the first really non-racial movement in South Africa. And people like Nelson Mandela, Tamba, and others found that only with those people among the whites were they accepted really as equals. So the alliance was pretty strong. And so the spirit of the nation and contour where Seasway was formed to take up arms. Me, I'm a first generation white South African of British parents who had very little education, settled in South Africa, and I had all the privileges of a white kid school, matriculation, university, civil engineer, because I wanted to build for people. Found I could build for white people, therefore build a new South Africa, then I can be a civil engineer for all our people. And the arms struggle needs technically trained people. Dennis, will you be our arms maker? Yes. Why quick? Why so quick, Dennis? Because of the partisans in World War II? fought behind the lines. Freedom was everything. Life was not so important, seriously. Uh, those were my heroes, whether in Eastern Europe or Italy or France, the Maquis and so on. But also growing up in a left-wing home, 
I don't know if any of you still remember the term a red diaper baby. Sure. I'm a red diaper baby. Uh, and so I grew up knowing that people have a right to freedom and to develop to the fullness of their humanity. And so I had to take part. Um, and all I can tell you is it's not an easy decision to take up arms. People are going to die, man your own manly your own, because the state is so powerful. We don't have county intelligence, we don't have protective situations and so on, except for a few leaders. But the need is to put an end to that tyranny. Who was it who said, quite a famous American, the tree of liberty <coughs> requires the blood of patriots and tyrants, it is its natural manure. It was Thomas Jefferson. So I'm in good company, <laughs> you see. And why did he say it? Because at the time in the New England states, the states were in trouble for, they didn't have finances as a consequence of the Revolutionary War. They kept putting up taxes. The merchants kept putting up taxes. The farmers couldn't pay, so they seized the land, and the farmers resisted with weapons. And Thomas Jefferson was defending them against this imposition of authority, against the interests of the people as a whole. You know, the United States changed its attitudes over the years, just a little bit. But the concept that people have a right to put an end to tyranny has run through our history all over the world, the United States as well. So taking up arms we felt was justified. But we said we're doing it because we have to avoid terrorism. The attempt by the Pan-Africanist Congress, who seriously set out to arbitrarily kill whites, whoever they were, wherever they were. At least 50 were executed for it. I think it broke the power of the Pan-Africanist Congress. And our attitude in the ANC-led alliance was, South Africa belongs to all who live in it. If you practice terrorism, you cannot win support. You cannot break that unity. If I take a modern example, 9-11, through the American public as a whole into hatred of Palestinians. And they're ordinary working people who should be in their allies, in my opinion. And my opinion's the one that matters, you know. <laughs> uh, but I mean, just think about the way terrorism works. It doesn't win your support. It doesn't achieve your goal. It achieves greater backlash. And so we set out to avoid it. We could attack targets of economic and symbolic significance, but not people. We called the difference between soft and hard targets. The apartheid state never recognized that distinction. Killing people was their game. They seemed to enjoy it, and at the end they went crazy. But, you know, you take up arms, the state reacts. I told you of the Sabotage Act, and also a law permitting detention without trial for 90 days at a time, repeated until you had given information to the police to their satisfaction. License to torture, clearly. 
because he would have no contact with family, friends, or lawyers. Only the security police and people they approved of. Generosity of the country, you're going to be arrested the day the act comes into force. But you don't just leave, you go through your next higher command level from the Western Cape, Cape Town to Johannesburg. Dennis, please stay, we're planning an uprising, we need lots of weapons, you're the man to make them stay. So I stayed. My comrades had said, Dennis, you're sure to get at least 10 years in prison. So I stayed. I must tell you, it was a good decision, but it was a bad one, because I got four life sentences instead, and spent 22 years in prison. Not a good judgment, eh? <coughs> but we were arrested. Nelson Mandela is already in prison for having left, I told you, traveling through Africa, getting some training, getting guarantees of support from African countries, newly independent in the 1950s. And he's brought to be number one accused. And we're charged with a conspiracy to overthrow the state by force of arms. Nelson Mandela makes this brilliant speech from the dock, describing his childhood, his youth, his experience as an adult, his determination to emulate the leaders of his people who fought the British for a hundred years, delaying the conquest of South Africa. And he wants to emulate them. And he ends his speech with the very famous words that all his life, he has fought against white domination, he's fought against black domination. And his ideal, as in our Freedom Charter, is a society where we can live together in peace and harmony. And it's an ideal he hopes to live to see achieved, but if needs be, it's an ideal for which he is prepared to die. It wasn't shouted, it wasn't, there was strain in his voice, you hear it in the tape recordings now. But it was such a statement of principled politics of the need to be very firm. And the whole purpose of the state was to prove we were terrorists and our need was to show that the violence and brutality emerged from the very nature of the apartheid itself. And that speech set the tone, nationally and internationally. Some of us gave evidence. Our lawyers were a little worried if I gave evidence because um, they were worried I would uh, annoy the judge and he would want to hang me. Because I found the trial quite amusing for the, for the absurdities and for the way in which every time there was a bit of evidence against me, security <coughs> policemen would turn around and go like that to me. And I had the choice of ignoring them or responding. And since I couldn't talk to them, that would have been contempt of court, I had to decide do I give them two fingers or one finger. I gave them one finger, the economical way. I don't think the judge liked that very much. And the judge, like the prosecution, was as racist as South Africa itself, would say, Nelson Mandela makes this brilliant speech. Walter Sisulu had six years of schooling, a brilliant intellect, a really great theoretician, general secretary of the African National Congress, spends five days in the witness box being cross-examined. 
and the prosecutor has a doctorate in the laws is an arrogant white bastard, that's all I can say, seeking to humiliate this man by posing the typical white racist questions. South Africa must be a very good country. So many black people come here to work. So it's better than anywhere else in Africa. And Walter Sisulu is saying, I wish you were a black man just for one day and you would not make such a statement. You arrested my son in the court this morning when he was here to observe the trial. He's a young man, why did you arrest him? But whatever theoretical question was thrown at him, Walter would answer. And the prosecutor would say, yes or no? And he'd say, you asked a complex question, I'm going to answer you. And the prosecutor would appeal to the judge. I must tell you, you see, the judge didn't have a doctorate in the laws. And Percy Utah, the prosecutor, did. And there was serious dislike. <laughs> um, I think it's quite important to understand the dynamics because sometimes the judge would deliberately call him Mr. Utah to dismiss his doctorate. <laughs> and other times he would deliberately call him Dr. Utah <laughs> and say, Dr. Utah, you asked the question, wait for the answer. But also, Walter would make a statement requiring a technical justification. And the prosecutor would say, how can you speak such nonsense? And the judge would intervene and say, why don't you ask accused number three? That's me, the trained technician. He will tell you that you're wrong. But what he didn't know was that what Walter was saying was what I told him about the use of radios being detected and all sorts of things. That kind of prejudice was there. But Walter's evidence was so calm, so assured, it was remarkable. I gave evidence. There was no way I could talk my way out of what I'd done. And the purpose was to say why I'd done it, why I as a white had to be part of this struggle. Otherwise, I'm part of the oppression and I don't want to be. The others gave evidence. The trial comes to an end after eight months three months of the interrogation, eight months of the trial, and the judge finds us guilty of the conspiracy to overthrow the state and three related charges and is going to deliver the sentence the next day and comes in and after a lot of toing and froing, reads very quietly, almost inaudibly, that uh, the case, as I said, is one tantamount to high treason, and the only leniency is life on four counts. And my mother calls out, what is it, Dennis, what is it? And you know, I'm 31 years old, I'm still a little boy, you must know. And I said, he said, life, and life is wonderful. Mandela records it in his autobiography. So you can check up, it's true, I said. <laughs> Only there's a, there's a mistake in it. Mandela says it was my wife. My wife was already in exile with my kids, with our children. And the reason was I had escaped once and been recaptured. And my comrades said, I have to try again, but they will be waiting for me to whisk me out of the country. But you know, after you've escaped, first they put you in leg irons for a month and you walk with a clanking like 
down the prison corridors and so on. They even give you trousers like baby rompers with buttons down the sides so you can take them off to shower without having to take the chains off. At the end of the month they took the chains off and I had to learn to walk again because your balance is disturbed by the weight of them. But they then watch you like a hawk. You're what they call a runner. They're never going to let you get free. So my wife was in exile. It was my mother who wanted to know, not my wife. Historical error, please note. <laughs> um, and so into prison. Our lawyers have arranged we will meet together the next day to discuss an appeal. But the next morning, my comrades have already disappeared to Robben Island, and I'm kept in Pretoria, a thousand miles away, because there's segregation in the prisons. We all slept on the floor on mats, and uh, you know South Africa is not the tropical country you think it is. And uh, the floor was very hard when you're sleeping on a thin mat like that. The prison authority said the compound used for the floors was specially made for softness and warmth. And only a prison guard could say that without laughing while he's lying to you about it. Uh, we used to say the test for a recruit to the prison service was tell a lie with a straight face. It's the attitude of prison authorities generally. I met a Palestinian who did 10, 10 years in an Israeli prison. We were comparing notes. Identical experiences, absolutely identical. That's the way political prisoners are treated. But we survived the years. They tried to cut us off from the world. No newspapers, no radio for 16 years. We smuggled bits and pieces of news. New young prisoners came in. So we more or less knew what was happening, but not in detail. And Oliver Tambo, leading the ANC in exile, took the speech of Nelson Mandela's with the exile's leadership and created the international campaign Free Mandela. He was the focal point. Because of that speech, I'm prepared to die. And I can tell you that throughout the world, South Africa was known because of Mandela, and apartheid was an inverted way of understanding. Eventually, I was released after 22 years, the first of our group. And I came out of prison, and I would talk about the ANC, and they'd say, what's that? And I'd say, well, you know, Nelson Mandela is one of the great leaders. Oh, yes, now we know. We had to set about making it clear that this wasn't a one-man struggle. Uh, there was the first Wembley concert, the big rock stars singing there, free, free Nelson Mandela. Bet I don't sing it for you. <laughs> and uh, really 600 million people tuned into that concert. And then Mandela's released in time to come to the second Mandela concert. And he comes out of prison, arrives in London, an amusing incident, I met a British Tory MP, a <coughs> member of parliament in Margaret Thatcher's time as prime minister. I met him at a reception and uh, he says, it's such a pity that Mr. Mandela is coming to England and not meeting Mrs. Thatcher, the prime minister. And so I said to him, you know, it's not like dropping in for tea. 
uh, these meetings are arranged long in advance with an agenda and so on. And really, he's coming to Wembley to talk to the world. He's not coming to England. Wembley just happens to be in London. And it's convenient. Oh, he says, what a clear answer. I'm rushing off to Tory party headquarters to explain and talk to them. And they never made an ambassador. I don't know why. <laughs> what diplomacy that was. <laughs> Nelson Mandela comes onto the stage. Wembley Stadium is packed. 80,000 people. Hundreds of tens of millions of people all around the world listening in. And he makes a speech in praise of Oliver Tambo, who by this time was seriously ill. He'd had a whole series of strokes. He'd close, come close to working himself to death and getting Nelson Mandela out of prison, getting the possibility of negotiations underway, of having walked a line in the Cold War years between East and West to win support in the East Bloc from government and people, in the West from people who put pressure on their governments to oppose apartheid, which they eventually did pretty late in the game. Such a speech of praise. They had opened the first black law practice together. They were co-lawyers. They were comrades in the ANC. They were like brothers, seriously. Uh, not in a, real brothers. Not like in my family where my brother and I don't talk to each other, but there it is. Um, such a praise. Such a concern for freedom. It's not about me or thee and whose ANC it is. Freedom is the issue. It was a remarkable speech, really and truly. And so heartfelt and principled. Uh, you can't talk about Mandela without Tambo or Tambo without Mandela. And it pains me a bit today, now that Mandela's died, Tambo died before seeing freedom that brought us to the brink. Pains me to see Mandela praised as almost a holy man, the Messiah, Saviour, who single-handedly brought us freedom. It's not just the relegation of Oliver Tambo. It's forgetting the roughly 1,000 people who were extrajudicially murdered by the security forces about a hundred who were hanged, the tens of thousands of imprisonment years by so many people, of kids being murdered by the police during uprisings, of our young men who spent 30 years in exile in military camps, came back destitute, unfit for any kind of civilian life, who played such a strategic role. And truly the greatness of Mandela Tambo in that generation, of my generation, was that we mobilized people internationally, hundreds of thousands of people in the States as well. I'm sure some of you are old enough to remember it and be part of it, have been part of it. But in South Africa, before the ANC was legal, there was the United Democratic Front, with 1.2 million members affiliated, trade unionists civic societies, women, churches, sports, cultural bodies. 
adopting the policies of the ANC and thousands of young people who simply followed the ideas. It was that mobilization that brought us peace, not the persuasiveness of one man. And the danger today is we haven't finished our job of achieving our democratic South Africa. We have a beautiful constitution and we have to implement it. And things don't always go well. Government makes mistakes. There are people who seek their own enrichment. You know that from your country and from many countries. In our country as well. We have a flourishing democracy. The opposition is strong and vocal. And that's why I'm optimistic. But it's that ability to mobilize. And if you rely on Saint Madiba, Madiba's clan name, Mandela, or Mandela, then you demobilize your people. Wait for a new savior. We can't afford that. Me, myself, I was uh, still a member of the African National Congress. I was appointed, they say deployed, to an integrity commission to deal with people who bring our organization into disrepute. I've taken a leave of absence so I can come and talk to you and travel the world and have a hip operation and do other things. <laughs> but partly because I'm not sure what we can truly achieve. It needs much more, it needs much tougher leadership to overcome the problems. Not just a commission which doesn't have an investigative arm and so on, you see. So I'm kind of stalling for time while I work out what I'm going to do. But what I do now is really to raise funds for social projects. For instance, when we took over, we had 30,000 schools of which 20,000 had no libraries. Well, how do you learn English? And English is the language of education in South Africa, determined by our people. That's what they wanted. Should be mother tongue education as well, but we'll get there. But how do you learn English if there are no books to read? Well, I was privileged when Dad had a few pennies over at the end of the month. There were always cheap children's books in the 1930s. And so I set up a program in England called A Book and Ten Pennies. I give you my children's book and I give you ten pennies to send it over the sea to you from me. Bit of crude doggerel, but kids love it. We shipped in three million books. It's a lot of books. And it's five dollars a time. That's a lot of, lot of money. In South African rands, 50, to 50 rands a book, 150 million rands worth of books were shipped. And we raised money for an organization of women called Red Crisis Cape Town, sexual harassment, violence against women and children is an enormous problem. It's about powerlessness rather than eroticism. 40% unemployment in the formal economy. People are powerless. Uh, we've raised a lot of money to try and deal with this uh, problem of advocacy against violence, against women, for support for women when they lay their charges in the police station, for training police officers to handle women sympathetically and not 
re-violate them in the way they question them. And the same with prosecutors and forensic people and so on. Tremendously important. A mobile science laboratory to teach science where there are no, not an adequate number of science teachers, not equipped laboratories. A mobile laboratory that goes to 15 schools. And immediately the, the marks go up. Um, because you can see what's happening. It's not just words in a book. It's been going on for 10, 15 years now. And finally, or two others, one is the training of group therapists for traumatized children and their parents in the townships. Trained hundreds of people. You can't afford one-on-one -on -one therapy. In World War II, group therapy for traumatized soldiers was found to work. The people who created this project are psychotherapists themselves. The wife of the pair was my prison visitor for 14 years. And this is their contribution to the New South Africa, a fulfillment for them. And nowhere in the world do governments provide this kind of therapy for poor people, not adequately. World Health Organization says psychological health is as important as physical health. The trouble is you can't see a broken spirit, like a broken leg, or the symptoms of AIDS. So it's very difficult to raise the funding, but they stagger on, and I help raise funds, I've made connections for them. And finally, where I live in Cape Town, in a suburb surrounded by the mountains and the sea, uh, I'm not sure of the exact number, somewhere between 40 and 60,000 people. A rich area of white, a poorer area of colored fishermen, the industry has collapsed, all living in areas set aside under apartheid by law, and then a black township with some brick-built houses and the rest shanties. And this music project founded by a young music teacher who believes in music as a universal language. She created the project. I came into it when she had run out of money. Her father's inheritance was gone. And it always takes longer to build up an NGO than you think. And she was crying because she couldn't pay the rent on her house. I must tell you, it's quite relevant to my story. She just happens to be young and beautiful. And I said, I'll pay the rent for three months to give her a break. And then realized that's not proper, not right, for an old man to be paying her rent. Yeah, I felt bad about it. I made a contribution to the fund. It could pay her a little salary. It's the right way to go and then drew in other people to support as well. One way is to give an interest-free loan until the project can pay it back, which means never. You know, I mean, it's, uh, I've been married twice. My wives have left me better off than I've ever been in my life. So I can afford to do things like that. I get a state pension. I get a widower's pension, so I can survive. Uh, and this project has grown to 165 young people in a beautiful old heritage-protected house, rooms divided and sound insulated, so they're 10 rehearsal rooms. And the place jumps after school. 
kids come along from all over this area. And they play together, concerts, soirees, and so on. And it's such a joyful place. It's, for me, a fulfillment of my life, I have to tell you. And to watch the little kids come along, they get a bowl of soup and a sandwich, they have their lessons, group lessons, ensemble lessons for those who can't pay. For those who can pay, they have individual lessons, they, but they work together. And the director, who's now five or six years older than she was, has a very old dog who lies behind her in her office. And the kids come in to greet the director, but really to stroke the dog. The dog is the therapist. Seriously. They get calm. It's an amazing phenomenon. And you know, I don't really care how many of the kids become great musicians. I want them to discover their talents. I want them to know that they're special. Because they're kids, they are kids. And you should see the way they grow and flourish. One young man of age 30, black, a waiter, came along, wanted to learn to play the bass guitar. He could only pay half the fee. And of course, he's in like a shot because he's so committed. Well, after two years under the jazz band, we teach all kinds of music, but the jazz band was taken on tour of Germany, played in 10 cities, two great big, uh, one open air festival, one serious festival and workshops in different schools and so on. To see him sitting at the feet of a German kid teaching him, a kid, a young man out of a township who has no status back home, being a teacher. And the director, realizing his talent, coaches him through an audition to get into a foundation course at the University of Cape Town College of Music. They give him a 100% bursary, and at the end of the first year, he ends up on the Dean's merit list, <coughs> top marks in theory, a bursary for the first serious year of study, and please will you teach the 2014 foundation year. So from nothing to being a teacher at university. And for me, it's not everybody will do that but it's a sheer respect and dignity he's gained for himself. And the self-discipline and the seizing of an opportunity. And for me, to watch kids do this is the most beautiful thing on earth. Thank you for listening. And thanks to the College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of History for making this podcast possible.